play, but she enjoyed that song. She was humming along to the tune, as she always does. So it's great to be with you this evening. Um, and tonight we're, we're looking at Psalm 7, completely different subject to what we were looking at this morning. So it is, it's quite nice, really. Now, rather than just read through the psalm um, and then comment on it and go back to the parts of the psalm, um, I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction and then read the psalm throughout my time of sharing with you, if that's okay. So every now and then I'll stop and say, okay, this is about where we've got with the psalm. But just by way of introduction, I wonder if you can remember that quote, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's the version I remember. Um, and over the years, it's a version that I have quoted countless times. Maybe it's not so good. And even as a parent, I can remember telling my children as they've grown up when they've been teased or provoked. And I've, I've often used that. Now, you won't find that one in the Bible. It's, it's not a proverb. It's something that we, we, we constantly use. Of course, in, in reality, we know that those words are complete twaddle. Let's be honest, it's, it's nothing like that whatsoever. We recognise only too well that names really do hurt. And we have the Bible's backing on that. Because if I could quote Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21, the writer on this occasion says this, life and death are in the power of the tongue. And these words spoken are either poison or fruit you choose. And of course, we only then have to cross over to the book of James, and James writes an awful lot about the power of the tongue and the power of words. And uh, words are incredibly powerful. They, they can be good. They can build up. And we, we thought a little bit about that this morning as Paul and Barnabas revisited the churches on his first missionary journey. And he was all in the game of, of building people up. And he used teaching, he used words to do that. Words build up, they, they motivate, they encourage. We know that the words can also have the opposite effect. Words can tear down, they can hurt and they can cause terrible scars. It doesn't take me to tell you um, to remember an occasion where you know all too well what that person said really cut deep, it really hurt. And I bet you've never forgot it, have you? It's still there. So we know that words are really powerful. What other people say about us matters, particularly when what is said is, is completely wrong. Um, they can destroy our character. They can destroy reputations into thousands of pieces, um, especially when everything in you cries out, that's not fair. That's not how it was. Uh, if you've ever felt like that, then you are in really good company with David, who wrote Psalm 7, because basically that's what the psalm is all about. Now, if you know the psalms very well, you also know that uh, David wrote Psalm 6, the preceding psalm. And in that psalm, it's completely different. David openly confesses that he has done something wrong in God's eyes. The lovely thing about David, and what I've really appreciated about him, is his transparency, his integrity, and his honesty. He wrote about how he felt. And a lot of that came out in the Psalms, and that's why we relate so much to it. But you also find as you read through the Psalms, every single Psalm relates to something that happened in his life. So Psalm 6, David wrote those words knowing that he deserved what was happening to him, what he was going through. 
And on that occasion, he asks the Lord for mercy and grace. He asks for help and for leniency. But Psalm 7, however, is completely different in its flavour and its construct. In this psalm, David believes he's in the right and he's done nothing wrong. And in fact, he's convinced that he has been wronged by others. And that's what's coming through. That's the vein and the thoughts in that psalm. And he, he longs for God to step in and vindicate him. And so by way of introduction, that leads us to the theme of Psalm 7. It's all about vindication and judgment. Verse 8, the vindication of David, the servant of God. And then verse 6, if you glance at that one, he calls for the judgment of God on his enemies. Notice also, if you have your Bibles open and you're looking at that, if, it's, if your Bible is like mine, there is a title. This psalm does have a title and it's quite unique. If I pronounce it right, hooray, 10 points for me, but I might not. Um, I think it's, it's pronounced Shigeon. It is called a Shigeon of David. Now, this is the only occasion when this word is used in the book of Psalms. And in fact, you'll only find this word appear once more in the whole of the Bible. And for the other occasion, you have to turn to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3 and verse 1. The word shigeon, from what I've learned, might mean something on the lines of lament or to cry out loud. And that is what we have in Psalm 7. We can't be entirely sure, but it is, it's pretty close to what it's all about. Now, you'll also notice at the introduction of this psalm that it mentions the name Cush. Nobody knows who this Cush is, although we are given a bit of a clue. We're told he was a Benjamite. Now, this gives us a clue as to what David is getting at in this psalm and why he's crying out for vindication and for judgment. You'll remember that King Saul belonged to the tribe of Benjamin himself. And it may well be that Psalm 7 was written by David during the time when he was a fugitive. He was on the run. Saul was after his life. You'll know from the story of David that Saul was jealous of him and he came to hate David. And you know also that he wanted him dead. He wanted him out of the way. Maybe Cush and other leaders from the tribe of Benjamin slandered David. There we are, the use of the tongue. And smeared his reputation just to win favour and acceptance with King Saul at the time. Now, although we can't be certain about this background, I throw it out there because I think it's fairly close, whatever. But what we can be certain about is how David felt and the anguish the whole episode caused him. And we can also be certain about another thing, about the way David handled these circumstances. And I give him every credit for what he did. Basically, he did the right thing, but often it's the last thing we choose to do. He took it to God in prayer. He brought all of this, his anguish and how he was feeling, what was being said about him to God in prayer. He was praying and lamenting through the situation situation in which he finds himself. So come back to us just for one point for a moment. If you are in or you ever find yourselves in this kind of situation where you are convinced you're in the right and yet you're being treated as though you are in the wrong, then Psalm 7 will be very, very useful to you. And I would say to you, put it in your armory, bring it out when you need it at that moment in time. Now, 
we can look at this psalm under five headings. Uh, and the first one is this, and this is where we're going to start to read the psalm, promising. First one is, it's a prayer for rescue. Verses one and two of this psalm, David writes, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. This is the heart cry of David to his God, who is crying to for vindication. Just want to share with you a little story when it comes to being rescued supernaturally. I, I hope you like this. Uh, John Patton was born in Scotland uh, in the late 1800s. He was a Protestant missionary uh, to the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific. It was a hostile place to say the least because the previous missionaries in these islands had not only been killed by the natives, they had also been eaten by them. Sorry to be so graphic, but that was the truth of the story. John Patton and his wife went to evangelize these tribes with the gospel. One night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station, intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. Patton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them, would rescue them. Goes back to the cry of David, doesn't it? When daylight came, they were amazed to see all their attackers leave. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Fantastic. Remembering what had happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, well, who were all those men there with you? Patton knew that there were no men present, but the chief said that he was afraid to attack because there had been hundreds of big men in shining garments with swords drawn circling the mission station. Wow. True story. Um, another subject for another day. Do you believe in angels? Well, I certainly do. The ministry of angels is amazing. This was what I class as supernatural deliverance. And maybe this is what David is asking for right at the beginning of this psalm. He's asking God to come in to his situation, to intervene, to change it, to bring his judgment. And so pick up David's language in this psalm. It's really interesting. He uses the language of hunt. Well, he, he's bound to. Because remember, David in his past, he was a shepherd. He saw firsthand the damage and ruin a wild beast could do to the flock of sheep. And it's that imagery that he chose to use to describe the danger that he found himself in. Verse 2, again, they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces. He, he knows what he's talking about. Maybe he has witnessed. Maybe he's been part of, of scaring off and fighting off a, a wolf or a lion or a bear from his sheep. And if you remember, actually, he actually shared that truth with King Saul when he went to, to battle it out with Goliath. But here and now in this situation, he cannot frighten off or overcome his enemies. He's absolutely powerless. They're, they are too many. They are too big. They're far too strong for him. And he is absolutely overwhelmed by the situation. So he comes back to that point. He does the best thing he could. He brings it to God and he cries out to God, unless you save me, I will be torn to pieces. This was real. 
this was a heart cry <clears throat> and i don't know about you but maybe there are times when we can or we will relate to this situation the second point is this he asked god to search his heart this is david who is called the man after god's own heart heart work with david was very important it was very real and so he says in verses three to five lord my god if i have done this and there is guilt on my hands if i have repaid my ally with evil or without cause to robbed my foe then let my enemy pursue me and overtake me let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. This was real heart searching. This is David opening his life as an open book before God. After bringing his fears to God at the start of the psalm and praying for deliverance, notice now he's bearing his soul to God. In fact, David was willing at the end of these verses to put his life on the line if he was found to be the guilty party, if he was in the wrong. But also notice this, David, all through this, he's not once claiming to be perfect. He's not claiming to be sinless. What he is saying is that he is only innocent of this particular accusation, whatever it was, that was levelled against him. He abruptly responded, the trouble is, or oh, sorry, I've gone one point there too many, and intent on, on burning, um, hang on, totally lost now. Sorry, bear with me. <clears throat> I do apologise. Totally, totally lost here. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry. So going back to that, that point, David is, is bearing out his, his soul to God. And by all means, let's pray the words of Psalm 7, if, if, if it is applicable for that moment in time in our life. But let's remember, too, that we also will be exposed in the process as well. We, we would, like David, be, be open to God. And in fact, it might be a good chance to us if we pray these verses to look within at that time of our own hearts as we look out in judgment over others. And so going on to the third point, <clears throat> David then asks to be defended against his accusers, verses 6 to 10. And before I come into that, just a little illustration for you on this one. Um, Philip Brooks was an American clergyman and author, and he was best known to us for writing the words of the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. So you'll, you'll know that carol. He was the author behind those words. Now, Brooks, as a person, was known for his calm demeanour, and you can guess the surprise of his associates when one day they found him pacing up and down the floor of his study like a caged lion and one of his friends asked Mr Brooks what's the problem we, we don't often see you like this he abruptly responded the trouble is I'm in a hurry but God isn't 
hold on to that thought because it's very true and very relevant in our lives. We have all probably known those times when we have felt that heaven's clock is, is running slow. We want to speed things up. We want to see God step in in action and do it now, Lord, please. And if we haven't seen that, though, we certainly will do in our, our Christian lives. There are times when we feel that heaven seems so silent. God is just taking his time in answering our prayers and uh, meeting that need or changing that circumstance or situation. And this is how David is feeling as he's moving on through the psalm, as he's penning these words. Just look at how David felt in verses 6 to 10. And you really get a sense of David's anguish and determination here. He writes, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you, while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts, my shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. Did you pick up in verse 6? David appeals to the Lord to intervene. It's as if he says, and I don't want to appear reverence, but, but I do get the sense of where David is in this. Lord, when are you going to wake up and do something about this now? And he goes on to say then in verses 7 to 10, to ask God to vindicate him, to prove him right for those who have wronged him and that they should be judged. Now, it might sound pretty obvious, but there's a point of importance here. We only come to verses 6 to 10 after we have gone through the experiences of verses 1 to 5. In other words, only after we have sought refuge in the Lord, only after we have fully reflected on the possibility that we may well have been in the wrong, only after we have submitted ourselves to God's words can we really pray the words that David prayed in verses 6 to 10 with genuine integrity because remember it's the lord who's involved here he's the one who searches the heart he's the one who knows us inside out and knows what's going on now david's prayer may come across to us as something very strange and very alien because did you notice he isn't praying for god's mercy or grace he's not praying for god's forgiveness in this case he is praying for god's justice to step in. Now that might seem strange to you, uh, and it's because as Christians we are so often taken up with mercy against justice. And if you remember Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, he actually said this, pray for those who despitefully use you. And this is the Lord's teaching in the New Testament, which really flies in the face of, of where David is asking God for his divine justice to step in. There's a little story about grace and justice here a man went into a, a well-known artist's studio to have his portrait painted when he saw the painting he, he was not at all impressed and refused to pay the artist the artist asked him what was the matter and the man replied the picture just doesn't do me justice the artist replied you don't need justice my friend you really do need mercy mercy against justice and on this occasion we need to remember that 
God, our God of mercy, is also a God of justice. I think perhaps the key line in this group of verses comes in verse 8, where David says, let the Lord judge the peoples. It's crucial in all of this that David doesn't do anything himself. He doesn't take vengeance himself. Remember, the Bible also says vengeance belongs to the Lord. He is the supreme, the ultimate judge. It's to him that we need to come and give our situations. I don't know if in this kind of situation you've ever tried to take vengeance yourself in one form or another. Often we don't take part in the actions, but sometimes the more the thoughts are there, it comes into our minds. We think about how we want revenge, how we want to go about things to justify ourselves. Let's let's really stop, pause, give it to God, and like David, let's bring God in and allow him to do the sorting out. Remember, David was 100% confident that God, as a righteous judge, always acts fairly and right. And that brings me to the fourth point. He calls now on the righteous judge, which you see in verses 11 to 16. Again, just a little illustration here. Just this grave of the Supreme Court in the United States of America once said to a man who had escaped conviction by some technicality, I know you are guilty and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and a wiser judge and that there you'll be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. David knows that judgment awaits the wicked. He knows that. And then the next few verses pick up on how he uses three very powerful word pictures to declare it. He's now about to make a declaration, and he starts with this in verse 11. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend the straw and string the bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils, comes back on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Here, David is now, from asking to be rescued, from bearing his heart and soul to God, from appealing to the righteous God, he is now making an absolute fundamental statement about God. It's, it's continuing the thoughts of, of course, God protects the upright in heart. And as Christians, I think it's good to bear that in mind, that God will always be there to our defence. And he goes on to say that God will judge the wrongdoing of wicked men. In verses 11 to 13, God is visualised as a soldier. He has his sword drawn, and like an archer, he is poised for war. Verses 14 to 16, uh, 15, David pictures the wicked as, as a pregnant woman about to give birth. But what they give birth to is evil. Um, can you still hear me? It's all right. So, so I've, something's come up, so my speaker isn't working. But then that might be my connection. I was talking to Jonathan about earlier. So hold on, I'm, I'm nearly through. I'm still with you. And the, the final thing that David talked about, he's back to the hunting images. 
And um, it's the, the same images that he used at the beginning of the song, the image hunting. And this descriptive language that David is using, he said his enemies have prepared a booby trap, and yet they have been caught in it themselves. They have dug a hole, and they themselves have fallen into it. And then notice in verse 16, David reminds us that these people, his enemies, have actually brought all of this on themselves. I was trying to think of a New Testament equivalent of this just to share with you. And I could think of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. And this is what Paul wrote. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Another translation puts it this way. Make no mistake about it. You can never make a fool out of God. Whatever you plant is what you'll harvest. So Psalm 7 is, is pretty much the Old Testament illustration of what Paul was teaching the Galatians in chapter 6 of his letter to them to show this universal law in action. The final thing really to share with you is one final verse right at the end, verse 17. And it's where David finishes with praise. Well, he just tends to do that. He shares so much of his life and his, his journey in the Psalms, but how much of the Psalms are part of his prayer and worship life. And it's great that as David has poured out his heart to God, he finishes with a note of praise. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing praises in the name of the Lord Most High. And so the final words of this psalm are those of praise and are focused on God's righteousness. Well, absolutely. God is the righteous, righteous judge. David has done the right thing. He's gone to the right person. Although David may well have had things to say about his own righteousness, he had concerns about his own name and reputation and his family's reputation. But ultimately, he reminds himself and us that God's righteousness and God's name is what ultimately is important. Let me just finish with this. The Bishop of Chelmsford related this story of himself when he was, when he was a child. One day he was taken to the house of a very old Christian lady and she asked him to read a framed Bible text. The verse, Genesis chapter 16 and verse 13 read, Thou God seest me. And she said to him, when you are older, people will tell you that God is always watching you, watching you to see when you do wrong so that he will punish you. I don't want you to think of it in that way. It's not right. But I want you to take that text home and to remember all your life that God loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. And I think that's quite a fitting conclusion because we will be damaged and hurt by the words of other people. But let's remember that we're, we're not alone. We, we have our Christian friends around us, but even greater than that, we have a God who is always watching. So points to learn just to take away this evening. We can learn that as God's people, there will be times when we will be slandered. We, we, we will be targets. We, we, sp we spoke this morning about Paul and Barnabas and the way they faced opposition. They were slandered. There are times when we will face that. We can learn that false accusation can happen and it is extremely painful to bear.
but we can also learn that God cares about injustice. He's always watching us. His eyes are always upon us. We can learn that it's always best to go to God about the situation rather than taking on board ourselves and trying to deal with it. And it just seems to be a bigger mess when we finished. We can learn the importance of examining our own heart. David was very good at doing that. And we can learn that lesson. And we can learn that whether sooner or later, directly or indirectly, God will always set things straight. The wicked will be judged. Evildoers will face God's judgment. We know that that is, is true. And we learn that in spite of trouble, picking up on David's final thoughts, we can carry on praising God and thanking him for his righteousness, which is ultimately and always supreme. Uh, sorry for getting lost partway through, but um, that's, that's just the way I put my notes together. I do apologise, but I pray that uh, something of that will be a blessing um, and a help to you. I think it's one of those psalms where maybe not now, but don't forget it. Tuck it away in your, your arsenal and bring it out when you face those times uh, of, of, of the wickedness of people's words and don't get caught up in it yourselves. Thank you.